Come home with me. Gonna love, I got the gonna I got something in store. You gonna come back for more. I was on the cover, it was nothing. That ain't nothing but ten cent loving. Hey, little thing, I'm gonna light your candle calls the morning. I'm sure the handyman gets around. No, I can't live what I'm a man on your scene. I can't give you I know you, you've got a man, but I can love you better than him. I love that good though, and I got some more in store. I love that good you not come back for more. That ain't nothing but ten cent love, and hey, little thing, let me knock your candy cause the morning. I'm sure the handyman gets around. Down, 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 down. Baby, here I am, a man on your scene. I can't give you what you want, but you got to go home with me. All right. I just sent, submitted the thing that uh, sends it out, the, the tweet to tweet. Ah, uh, howdy, y'all. Back in this room, back in the cube, the cube. I like to think that this is my my new posting cube, my winter posting cube. Ah, uh, and we love it, folks, don't we? We love to have the show. Man, I miss them already. I didn't think I would. I thought I would be sick of it, but it's just so weird how he's gone. And now he says, oh, I got the office of the ex-president, and I'm going to be doing this or that. But he's not out there. He's not out there. The wind crawls Maria. So I wanted to start today, start today talking, kind of expanding on the implications of what I've been talking about in regards to the real base of the, like, insurrectionary right in this country. You're not just the capital stormers, but the entire swath of America that they represent. Electorally, but more importantly, culturally. And uh, the thing about it is a lot of confusion ends up stacking up around this stuff because the object of this revolt is so clearly now not really... I mean, yes, it is racist, and it is right, uh, misogynist and patriarchal and all that stuff, but the target of its ire really is not just the cultural uh, structure that creates those things that they don't like, but genuinely the economic structure that's tied to those, because there is, this is a con conflict between a... a, a um, national, regional, small bourgeois who are both, who are feeling culturally attacked, but are in fact, in actual point of fact, behind their back because they're a bunch of dumbasses and they are as lumpenized as the rest of us and lobotomized as the rest of us by the experience of living in like the, in the post-material America where we don't make anything, we don't have, we, we, we just consume and consumption is how we uh, view all of our lives, and so all of our politics and gets and and the way we stack ourselves goes along that, which means we're only responding to cultural stimuli. They're revolting against that. That's what they think they're revolting at. But the thing that's actually prodding them towards extremism, not their opinions. They are reactionary people, but the extremism with which they hold them, not just voting for Republicans, but going to places with guns to protest, and then and if enough of them coming to Washington D.C. and and, and just generally denying the result of an election, which is this... And I mean, the, the libs obviously are using it to their advantage and they're all hysterical, but we have crossed the Rubicon here in terms of the way that our two-party system post-Civil War has coalesced around questions of exchange of power, 
That's true. It has to be addressed. And the thing that's driving that is not the opinions. They're the same opinions people held in the 60s, in the, in the 70s, under Reagan and fucking uh, Newt Gingrich. It's the same set of reactionary views driven by the same local, uh, local culture of, you know, small holder uh, hierarchy, you know, a hierarchy of race and gender. And then within that, uh, whose family you're with? Are you, are you at the top? Do you have the, 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 uh, the license to the fracking well, or, you know, do you have the franchise for all of the Arby's on the West side, whatever like land-based thing you have that is fixed and is not a free flow of capital that can go one way or the other, the way that finance capital on the coast is, that fixed asset creates a culture around it, okay? And it's uh, and within that culture, politics is view, is understood as this cultural war, because the the assumed basis of capitalism that's driving everything is taken for granted. That can't be challenged because it's been good for everybody i.e. the people at the top who then create a culture around themselves that justifies all of their power, that uses things like racism and, and, uh, and gender anxiety to maintain those structures. It is stabilizing of the local conception of capitalism there. But now we have this, uh, this ever-accelerating uh, global capitalism, this f totally unfixed finance capitalism that has replaced productive economies in the West and most specifically in the United States. And it has a culture around itself that by definition cannot use a lot of those old structures because they make it harder to create a, a marketplace for transactions to occur. Because the thing about that local regime of power is that it has to exclude. It has, it's but defined by what it excludes. And for global capitalism, the culture of global capitalism, the technologically driven culture of global capitalism and media, that those things have to dissolve in order to create an actual con comprehensive market so that you can sell to everybody, not just part of a certain, uh, you know, chosen uh, racial grouping that has like the cult that deserves the ability to consume because of the uh, virtues that are inherent to either their gender or their race. No. We have to create a new model so that everybody is, is a citizen, as in a consumer. And there is a conflict there. And, it, and that is the conflict that is uh, understood as like the cultural war against regular Americans or whatever. But what's driving that is the real material conflict between these smallholders maintaining their exalted economic position and the pressure of global capitalism to strip them of their assets as we push towards total monopoly. That's the engine that's driving this whole train, is monopoly. And it, it means that it's coming for everyone's assets. First it came for the small amount that has held together, uh, that was cobbled together by the moment in the sun that the, that the working middle class was able to put out there, you know, just homes, in, home investments and maybe some stock. Uh, that all got wiped out over the course of the last 40 years, but they're still held these physical assets, and those got to go too. And that's a real conflict. But that's not what we have a politics about. We have a politics that is this spectacle of cultural grievance because we have lost class consciousness. And what that means is that there are going to be tons of actual working class people who support this counter-reaction, this reactionary battle against global capital, uh, like globalization. And and they, because they are declassified as Americans, because they do not live class, they're examining the changing culture through the lens of where, they're, where they are, their physical environment, the actual culture, the rural fixed culture or rural or exurban fixed culture that they reside in. And they see this as an attack. And even though it has nothing to do with their material interests, it's the material interests of their bosses who have the same basic premise of totally uh, wage destroying or, or uh, totally ab uh, abjecting the working class over time. The only difference is in my model of local hegemony, I get to stay on top. 
And I don't have to worry about being proletarianized the same way that the middle class has become, the same way that the PMC is becoming. It can't, it's going to come for me, and I want to prevent that. And that's the fight. And it's going to enlist a ton of working class people because they're responding to a cultural conflict that is the language we process politics with. And that's the actual conflict happening here. Driven by a material conflict between regional and global finance, capital and expressed culturally. And uh, I think one thing that doesn't get pointed out enough is that that, content, that dynamic is the dominant political dynamic in every fucking country right now. In, people want to talk about the big strike in India. The, the, the farmer strike against neoliberalization uh, from Modi's, you know, Modi's transfer of the economy, because like Modi is like the neoliberal. If there is such a thing as a neoliberal fascist, it's Modi. He uses Hindutva nationalism to propel an agenda of hyper neoliberalization of the economy, and that means they're getting rid of the subsidies for a bunch of uh, farmers in uh, in some states in India near Punjab and around there, uh, and it's a and it's led to this long strike and revolt by these farmers. And so that looks like the same way a lot of the anti-establishment politics on the right in America looks like traditional working class uh, uh, mobilization against capitalism. That's, it looks like that, a strike by farmers. But you got to remember that within the context of these states, in the, these farmers are the local landowners. They are the landlords. And they get their money out of the land by leveraging state subsidy like free electricity and, and water and stuff in exchange uh, and then the hyper-exploited labor of the landless classes, many of whom from poorer states and other parts of India who are brought in as essentially slave labor, reproducing the old feudal system that fucking existed before the Raj. And their revolt against neoliberalism, it's, it is a popular revolt, and it is on behalf of some version of the people, but those are people who, within a regional uh, network of power, are on top. That is true of, in Brexit. The Brexit vote and the whole politics of that in Britain. It's the exact same thing. It is a revolt of regional power against London. Against, against London, and now not even London. It's basically, it actually, no, uh, yeah, Le because London was always such a lodestar. Like, there, it doesn't have the same, like, regional diversity. Like, London was always London since the beginning of capitalism. But it becoming Brussels or Hamf uh, Frankfurt, that was not acceptable. That's the fight. It's regional versus, in the context of the EU, uh, global. Like, Hamburg represents, uh, you know, our neoliberal consensus the same way the Democratic Party and, like, the bipartisan consensus in, in our politics does. But it's on behalf of regional power, not on behalf of workers. Workers might agree with it because they're expressing things through the cultural lens that they have emerged out of. And it's true on continental Europe. Fucking Orban and all of the, the neo-fascists who, uh, who are now uh, creating these regimes of resistance Poland. This is... And, and the thing that makes this so difficult to parse and the reason that there's so much conflict about what to do, how, how to respond to this, how to respond to these people, like, should we, is it, is it wrong to try to uh, appeal to them? Does, is that acceding to white supremacy or something? You know, like, are they fascist? Is that, is that, and what does that mean? And like, is it working class or are they the PMC or is, is the PMC a class of itself? All of these really distracting and, and incredibly enervating questions emerge from this category error because you have an actual expression of, of class-wide resistance to neoliberalism being fully uh, articulated and globalized. And the fact that that is going to... And that the, the, the cultural shape of that response is going to come from everyone who is being... Uh, threatened by this. But the people who are going to be threatened by this will express their alienation in the same way, generally, as the people around them. 
And so that means even though you have like the working class people of these exurbanant rural areas are responding to real material uh, threat, the fact that like the working class has been destroyed, the fact that uh, like that the ones who even did get a college education but didn't go to the big city and tried to stay home, that even they are getting squeezed, and that the employees of a lot of these small firms who do not feel that alienated from their bosses who because of other relationships, like maybe racial or something, but like just cultural affinity being a bond that like overcomes their felt sense of alienation because remember they don't they don't express it to themselves in the terms of class conflict the idea that their labor is being alienated does not occur to them that the whole idea that, that that there that there is a fundamental violation in the very fact of the wage system they do not accept that because where would they have heard that where would that have come to them and if they did feel that in the moment and they tried to express that, what likely surrounding vocabulary is most probably going to fill the hole and shape their idea of what's happening to them? It all gets recuperated at the superstructure. All that alienation gets recuperated at the superstructure, but it expresses itself in a way that's identical to people who are just these regional barons who want to maintain their fiefdoms. And so that means... That what to do instead of being a question of how do we uh, draw the line for people between capitalists and everybody else and away from all these other absolutely distracting and counterproductive axes that all serve to confuse the line of battle and to... Uh, subvert the most important thing that a nascent left, a non-existent left has to do, which is dis, uh, divide the people and orient towards them. And that hasn't begun yet. The sorting, the sorting has to come before you can create the thing. Because remember... There's no army here. There's no real left. It has to be built. And the first step of building is identifying a, a uh, population. And we're not even there yet. And all of this argumentation, that's in, all this fucking distracting bullshit, all these anxiety-riddled uh, counter-arguments that are all about preening about one's own moral superiority, what, you're either showing everybody that you don't give in to that neoliberal bullshit and you understand that class is real and that all of this uh, uh, language of oppression and intersectionality is all just anxiety-riddled white people and cynical minorities fucking over everybody else. And I get that. Or you're demonstrating that I'm not like those knuckle-draggers. I understand what it means to be white. And I understand that to be a good person, I have to feel bad about it and I have to express that felt, that felt badness. And I'm, that's all you're doing. But, but the, I think, honest and good faith uh, dilemma that powers all of this bad faith argumentation is that confusion. Because this battle that is now waging across the world, this local baronial revolt against the boot, the, 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 uh, the hyper-normalizing, uh, hyper-rationalizing, uh, homogifying push of globalization um, is God damn it, I forgot where I was going. Oh, uh, that, that that's the sum total of politics right now. And, 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 the, and the working class is only incidentally involved. The working class is participating to some degree, but because on the terms of the fake politics, on the terms of the spectacle, or are disengaged because they've made a rational choice and a rational uh, analysis of the situation and said, oh, politics is fake and there's no reason for me to care about it. They understand that. And so they are not participating. Or if they are, they're participating on the terms of this fucking baronial conflict, which means they are operating not on their own behalf, but on the behalf of one or the other side's ruling elite.
So this is the conflict. This is the fundamental category error we have. And, and because it's trapped in this box, there's no arguing your way out of it. The lines are set and cannot be moved. And as politics progresses and accelerates, and as conflict progresses and accelerates, the, the, uh, the urgency to pick a side of these arguments, because they will be more and more relevant over time as politics gets more extreme in response to continually accelerating crisis, um, the terms are going to get so, uh, the stakes are going to get so high. Democracy, the uh, white supremacy, you know, uh, the end of the Anthropocene, that your ability to break out of it is going to be impossible. You're going to be absolutely um, uh, pot committed to one or another side uh, of this of this war between the king and the and the barons, basically. And that's why the only thing that might break this is for a orthogonal politics of explicit class class alienation that generates a counterculture of its own that is immune to these discussions and distinctions and to organizing around these distinctions and shatters through them. I've described this before, but that really is it. And as I've said before also, the thing that it reminds me most of is the Haitian Revolution. How you ha And I said this on a previous stream. Uh, shout out again to my friend Everett's Age of Napoleon podcast, which is talking about it now. And of course, Mike Duncan had a really great series on it in the Revolutions podcast he does. Uh, but the politics of uh, Haiti on the precipice of the slave uprising after the uh, revolution in France had kicked off a period of, uh, of political ferment there on the island. Uh, the politics of that, I would say, in the court, not even over the before the, re the revolution and then also once the revolution started, uh, but before it had like become a real before it had uh, coalesced into uh, a real threat to power, because after the initial wave of revolts and, and plantation burnings and, and uh, violence, uh, the, the cities were still held by uh, the French, and they were able to mount expeditions into the countryside to try to reclaim them. And there was a period there where it was sort of stalemated, and that was the period when uh, the French uh, uh, representative on mission... Uh, the, the Jacobin uh, Sultanox uh, emerged to uh, coordinate the French revolutionary government response to the, the violence. Uh, the politics of the island where you had the, the party of the whites, the big and small whites, the regional local authority, both motivated by a mixture of cultural and real interest conflict with France. The cultural conflict with France after the revolution and after there was a movement in the revolutionary uh, government to uh, acknowledge at least colored people uh, um, as they were known as, as citizens. That was repulsive to the big whites, as they were called, because they were interested in the dominance of their government because then they could set their prices. They didn't have to stick into the mercantile system. That meant they could only trade with the French uh, uh, metropole. They could get the best price on the open market. Essentially the same motivation of our patriots, our sons of liberty in the American Revolution, which was to uh, break the trade monopoly with the British. Uh, and uh, the revolution was their mechanism. In the same way, the big whites, this this racial discontent by the small whites, which was powered by their resentment of the fact that even though they were they were on the island to make their lives, they did not have land. They, they worked jobs in, as clerks, uh, overseers, the things that the things that the, the kind of stuff that is alienating labor and that the big whites pay up uh, either pay, paid them to do and compelled the blacks to do. And the difference was color. It was literally the, the, the wage. As uh, as Dubois Dubois called it, uh, the 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 skin wage was the fact that ha they had to pay them and that they could have their freedom and that they weren't compelled laborers. Uh, but that tension between those two groups is exactly what generates uh, political anxiety and the kind of reactionary sentiment we see with the fucking MAGA revolution, as it's echoed in all these other places too, especially all throughout Europe. 
Um, and whatever their, even though they, they, they had a class conflict that underlied both, it was concealed by this racial solidarity. They were op opposed by the, the freed colored uh, Haitians uh, who were, because uh, in French slavery, uh, the customer, the culture around uh, inter, uh, uh, intersexual, intersexual, uh, interracial relationships was different. So than it was uh, like in North America, like in the colonies, uh, you could of course sexually take advantage of your slaves and you have produced children, but they were slaves. Uh, in Haiti, the uh, culture was different. You, many of the um, many of the plantation owners took slave wives, and they generally and, and, and almost as a matter of course acknowledged their children by slaves as legitimate, which meant they were uh, heirs to land. So that means that you would buy the revolution created a good segment of uh, land owning and and then you know associated you know cultural institutions like lawyers and stuff. Uh, free color cult population. This is very similar to how the Democratic Party is now the party largely of people who, since the 60s, have been allowed into government. Um, and what legitimized the political conflict and, and, and generated it was the fact that the revolution in France, in order to carry out the principles of, of liberty that they were trying to impose, uh, was moving towards equalization of citizenship between races, which led to this conflict in uh, Haiti, and then after the revol, and then after uh, I believe after the king is uh, uh, killed, who show the they actually get a new French military invasion from. Uh, oh, this is after the. I'm sorry. So in the middle of this conflict between these two, the uh, which is being of course observed by the slaves at every moment. Um, there is a slave uprising, an orthogonal political movement to break up this conflict. Because the thing these two conflicting sides have in common is that they both believe slavery is the only economic system and that they will defend it completely and that it is inviolable. And so in the, and then when this revolution happens, the French send, the French revolutionary government sends a uh, representative on mission commanding French troops, Santanax, his name was. And he set about imposing... Uh, revolutionary French virtue on the uh, colony by backing up the uh, free color party against the big whites, going to war against the big whites. But of course, not for, uh, authorizing the, the freeing of slaves. And so you've got the government like having to choose between these two sides, choosing with the side that they think has a deeper uh, is more suited to the moment because you've got so many white people and so few black people on Haiti that over time that uh, that you have to have a stabilizing like uh, influence. And the way to stabilize it is to increase the pool of people who are exempt from slavery and therefore can contribute to the economy and will have their vested interest in keeping slavery imposed and keeping slaves down, keeping slaves exploited. And, um, and that means that in the broader interest of the French colonial economic system, uh, recognizing freed colored citizenship is in the best interest of the economy. But the local interests of the of the local rulers of Haiti, it is against both because it undermines their relationships with the small whites and, more importantly, it subordinates their economic interests to the revolutionary French government, which could mean having their property confiscated or, at the very least, they will be prevented from trading with the British or anybody else, obviously. And so the revolutionary French government backed the free colors against the whites. And they probably would have won. But then what happened? The fucking slaves kept organizing, kept fighting, and kicked all those motherfuckers off. And that, if there's hope, 
as George Orwell said, it'll come from the proles in the exact same way in all these other countries, and hopefully at some point organizing to bring themselves together and coordinate their actions between themselves. A unmystified, uh, class-conscious counterculture emerging from an organization of uh, people at their places of business or places of work, places of exploitation, will uh, generate the momentum to come in from the edge of this battle and because the two are at war, break this fucking stalemate and win the fucking prize. Now, what shape that will take, I, of course, cannot say. That would be absurd. But in general contours, that's what you have to put your money on. And what the practical implication of that is, is once again... I'm a broken record. Log off. At least log off to these arguments. Because none of them refer to the matter at hand. They refer to this phantom war between the barons and the king. And yes, someone's asking about Haiti's very bad situation, which obviously a lot of people have pointed to to say, look, this is what happens when you let the fucking proles take over. They can't do it. Being in charge, even if it is not racially mandated or even uh, like morally mandated, is pragmatically mandated by the fact that people on top have the understanding of the mechanisms of power sufficient to master their environment, and that it's not that it doesn't even have to be a moral question. You can't even say it's because they're better people; they're more refined. That might be the justification you use. The practical matter is, is that they built the machine, they know how it runs. And if the people who are outside of it, and by definition, because they're outside of it, they have not been really initiated into it. The people really initiated to it are always going to be a very small sliver of any effective. And I mean, you'll get a little bit of the middle class, but if they're never they're, if they're the vanguard, if they take over, then they will reproduce uh, the exploitative relationship because they have to stay on top. Until you equalize labor, you cannot uh, get rid of hierarchy uh, in that uh, of that and that and the separation of classes. So they say that, and that's that's the that's the evidence. And that's that's why you can't. And that's why revolution is never to be sought, and it must always be avoided. Uh, but the answer is Haiti was, and and the true and 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 I would say that the case in almost every counter every example that is used in this way, is that every. The reason that the, the record of revolutionary governments is poor in general uh, in terms of like quality of life and stuff and, and political freedom, which is a thing, I'm sorry, I know people have to jerk off to the idea of gulags, but you do need to have some fucking freedom of expression culturally. You do have to have, the, the, like the jackboots are bad, whoever is wearing them, because they're bad for your so, your social structure. They turn you everyone into cynics. They make it impossible for anyone to really believe in the project. And people have to believe in the project or else it's just a skeleton of oppression that is might not be capitalist, but is still cannot overcome capitalism. All of them had to be destroyed. All of them had to be strangled in their crib. And the ones that couldn't be had to be at every moment that there existed opposed by capital. And that pressure deformed them. In, and, and in the case of Haiti, it's not just that they were immediately ostracized and in fact de facto embargoed by the United States, which didn't recognize Haiti as an independent country until the Civil War. Uh, that was, that'd be one thing. The fucking French extracted billions and billions of dollars over the decades in compensation for the property that they lost in the revolution. That is an incomplete revolution by definition, as all of them have been. And that is why the moment, the real spindle point, the turning uh, wheel of the fucking Dark Tower, the level of the Dark Tower we're on, the, the, the floor that we're on of the Dark Tower, the one where our fate is sealed, maybe, is 1918 to 1922. Because 
they would never admitted it later because they didn't want to look wrong. But none of the Bolsheviks, none of the ones who actually made November 1918 happen. And it was a small handful of people. And this is why vanguardists love to fetishize the Bolsheviks. Because getting numbers has always been the left's problem once uh, the New Deal kicks in on the West. Because you buy off the working class in huge numbers. It makes it, you, your audience is smaller. Your discontented workers, by definition, is a smaller audience. And so you have to fetishize the effectiveness and coordination of smaller groups because that's all you really have. And the example of, and, the re, and you can't really blame them in some respect because we do have a historical example. It was a handful of guys. It has been stated before, and I believe it completely, that if the train, the sealed train derails on the way from Switzerland to the Finland station, and like Lenin gets, and that whole car full of people died, there is no October revolution. There is most likely some sort of uh, Kornilov-esque military putsch that initiates a um, pr like an early fascism, but like less mechanically advanced uh, than the the, the uh, German version and less expansionary than the Ger expansionary than the German version because it starts from a lower level of economic uh, complexity. Like it was essentially a feudal country with a with a modern facade. And then the 21st, the 20th century just dropped in their fucking lap at Tannenberg, and they had no way of dealing with that. That's why they fed, they 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 uh, collapsed. That's why so few people could be so de decisive. But anyway, you would have had some sort of military uh, uh, counter revolution that would have included, by definition, uh, because you would have had to, you would have had to really put the boot down, just like after 1905, like the Black Hundred times a hundred, which would have necessitated some systematized pogroming of the Jewish population of the Russian Empire. And Trotsky said that, and he's 100% correct on that. Uh, the man was a good historian, which is why he was such a shitty leader. <laughs> because if you know how contingent this shit is, and you know how many variables goes into it, and you know how it's very hard to uh, pick a side, you need to be a little more... But anyway, none of them would have gone forward. None of them would have gotten in that room with them and like yelled it out with uh, Kamenev uh, about uh, whether to go forward with it, uh, having to like decide at the last minute to, to uh, rescind the uh, endorsement of the July uprising because it just didn't feel like the moment was right. Uh, they did all of that assuming that their first shot would be met with A, European continent-wide revolution starting in Germany. They 1,000 billion percent thought that. They operated from that assumption. That assumption undergirded everything else. You can talk about tactical stuff. You can talk about personalities. But they're all shaped by that underlying fundamental belief. And for a minute there, it looked like it might actually fucking happen. There's, uh, there's uh, moments... When like after the Kiel uprising of the sailors in in Germany, when uh, when Lenin is is like, this is this is gonna happen, and then it didn't, and then that might have been when the door got shut. I'm not saying it is. I'm all spe I'm speculating on a hypothesis because if that succeeds. If the, if, if, and the thing is, is that the revolutionary potential in Germany to succeed existed. I 100% believe that. I believe that the, the organizing capacity and motivation of the working class in Germany relative to the power of the uh, old ruling class in Germany after World War II was such, the power balance was such, that a properly organized German working class successfully overthrows not just the Kaiser, but German capitalism. And that if that happens, people would say, well, they would be instantly attacked by Germany, England, and France. Yes, they would have. But if that happens, there is simultaneous working class uprisings and general strike actions in France and Germany, or in, in England. And it didn't happen. There's a million reasons, and you could... If you got enough of them, you might find the 
dark beating heart of history, which is that everything is fully predetermined and that nothing has any alternative, that we live in a world that is fixed on its rails, and that only that only the illusion of projecting forward and the fantasy of, of looking backward through the glass darkly both ways gives us any delusion that we have uh, any kind of uh, alternative. But of course, we don't know that. So we have to operate from the assumption at all points that that's not true, because that is what it is to live, and therefore that is what it is to fight and to struggle and to move towards justice. Uh, how about this alternative world? How about the place where Benjamin Butler accepts Abraham Lincoln's offer to be his vice president in 1865, in an 1864 election? Because Butler had been a fucking, um, he had been a doe-face's doe-face before the war. You want to talk about, like, border state credentials, which is why they had to put, um, the Democrat Johnson on the ticket. Butler, he was from Massachusetts, but he was as much a doe-face as Franklin Pierce or any of those other fucking Yankee scumbags. He fucking voted for Breckenridge in 1860, not even Stephen Douglas. He voted for the South's candidate. That is how committed he was to sucking off the slave power to maintain his corrupt influence in the Democratic Party. So you want to get a guy on the ticket who reaches across the aisle, my God, you couldn't do better than Benjamin Benny Butler. So it's not like you have to worry about throwing away any advantage, and it doesn't matter anyway. The war, or uh, Lincoln's election was won by the army. And that's why the Democrats nominated McClellan, who, even though he never won a battle, was notoriously beloved by his soldiers because he made sure that they were well kept and taken care of, of course, because he didn't make them do anything. Um, oh, our casualty rates are so low because you're fucking not fucking fighting the enemy. Of course you like this asshole. That's why they picked him. But the fucking, the boys in blue said, no, we're finishing this motherfucker. We're finishing this motherfucker. And by 1864, as James McPherson and others have said, the motivation of the, the troops in the field about why they were fighting had changed significantly since the beginning of the war. Now, a lot of them, these aren't obviously a lot of the same guys because uh, very few people who were serving at the beginning of the war were still serving at the end. But uh, the army was also much bigger by the end of the war. Uh, people who, in their letters home in 1861, are talking about bring, keeping the union together, the sacred union in our beloved constitution, which we love, by 1864, certainly after... Uh, uh, the breakout of Chattanooga and Sherman just plunging his dagger into the heart of Georgia. Uh, and the actual encounter between Union troops and the practical reality of slavery in the South, which many of them had never even really thought of, had only even encountered in popular amusements, led them to believe that this was a fight to end slavery. That it was a moral battle. I mean, it's you can say, oh, that's, you know, you want to justify why you're knee-deep in your friend's blood. Yes, exactly. You have to consecrate, you have to consecrate the sacrifice. And the Constitution wasn't cutting it by 1864, which means that the fucking aperture of humanity was opening. And so, yes, they won Atlanta and that helped push it, but it was never that close. The boys in blue voted for fucking, uh, to finish the war on the terms of ending slavery for all of time. They had been radicalized. John Brown's mission was moving forward. And then that cracker motherfucker, Andrew Johnson. So I'm saying Butler gets in as the VP because they offered it to him. That's a, a killing glow. They offered it to him and he turned him down. Just like Henry Clay turned down the VP spot from William Henry Harrison, which honestly might have averted the Civil War and allowed slavery to go out peacefully the way assholes like Ron Paul thinks so. Although I don't know if that's actually true or not. Maybe, probably not. But man, the, the chance for the Whigs in the aftermath of the collapse of 1837 to govern from the idea of like the national model, uh, the, the American system of clay, which, because, which was possible because they won all three branches. They had the House Senate, which is the only time they did. And they had this fucking disgusting slave freak pervert John Tyler out there 
who has living grandchildren because he married a fucking 16-year-old when he was like 98. Disgusting satyr. Derailed the entire thing. And all we got was the democracy and its hegemonic uh, westward expansion. It's march, mad march towards oblivion to govern the politics until, of course, it collapsed because it was not viable. So anyway. Butler gets in. And let's throw another little one in here. Let's say Lincoln doesn't even get shot by Booth. Maybe Butler brings a bottle of whiskey over to the White House and they play cards with Grant instead of going to the fucking uh, bullshit theater. Celebrate the win. Who knows? We're balling. I don't know. Anything. Fucking Booth trips on his dick. Whatever. And then you get a Lincoln-Butler administration moving towards uh, social equality, not out of a desire to see it done, but simply as a process of Seeing the assertion of black rights, the assertion of black economic demands, and social equality that flows from that, seeing the way that that connects to this infrastructure of you know still committed troops and the growing uh, migration of carpetbaggers, literally like going to the countryside to remake the culture of uh, the backwoods and of these places, which had no public schooling because there was essentially no public um, there was no public um, provision of education or infrastructure of any kind in the southern states because it was governed along, they were governed along Jeffersonian model of no, minimal government, maximal individual freedom, which means the freedom mostly of existing economic stakeholders to hyper-exploit and then sit on the money and buy golden fucking uh, uh, bassinets and uh, and shiffer robes made of, of fine uh, Siamese uh, teak, whatever the fuck. This is a made. This is a rhino horn. My bulls, my stars. And if those fuckers had been dethroned under the auspices of a Lincoln Butler administration. And then, let's throw one in here, some pissed off cracker, because there would be revolt. There, the war would kick back up, is the thing. The war would kick back up. The guys who had turned in their fucking guns would gather them up again. Like, the real, the ruling class of the South would not have accepted that. And maybe one of them shoots Lincoln, but in 1867 or so. And then a fucking fully enraged Yankee Leviathan, headed by Benjamin Butler, who had been radicalized by the war along racial lines the same way that the troops had been, was, the, was one of the first generals to, uh, to release uh, and emancipate slaves on his own, on his own uh, authority when he encountered them, and after the war became a radical Republican, uh, and eventually a greenback candidate for president on a, in a populist uh, uh, soft money platform of uh, like taking the real implications, the social implications of uh, the Civil War, which were, if they'd been taken to their logical conclusion, led to the expropriation of all slave-owning property, redistribution of it to uh, the multiracial uh, peasant class of the South, And the destruction, the necessary destruction of the constitutional order and the U.S. Constitution itself. Butler enthroned Sumner, Stevens, not likely, didn't happen, could have happened. Like I said, we might be on, stuck on this level of the tower but the tower, there's another tower where this happened, and it's not that different. It's different, but it's not that different. And the question of how much of that is mere chance really does stick in your brain. But anyway, so that country then emerges, and then as conflict with capital, which maybe has been tamed by this new emergent authority and, and would have resisted this, but would have been able to resist it only marginally because of how overawing the political unity of the uh, 
the common American, like you can't say working class at this point, but you know, the small holdings slash uh, mechanic class, their unification around this means that they would have to take it the same way they had to take the New Deal. Like they had, they didn't want the New Deal, they had to take it. Same thing as this, they would have had to take it. But that fight wouldn't have stopped. And I'd say that like, maybe you don't have an American revolution, but maybe by World War I, you have a Eugene Debs-led socialist America in a constitutional order or in a, like a parliamentary system. And in that context, the United States does not enter World War I. And that doesn't stop the, the Russian Revolution, but maybe it accelerates the German Revolution or accelerates the French or English into revolt. And then you have a revolution that starts in Europe, spreads across the continent, Now, of course, the question of the, uh, the colonies, the self-expression of the colonies. That's the wild card. But that dynamic was arrested. Like, that's best case scenario. What I'm describing, this is like the people who, when the people were doing this stuff, this is the stuff that they were hoping would happen. This is why they were sacrificing. You know, like you have to have a vision. You have to have an articulated vision that you can move towards. And when enough people are moving towards it, then it has to be plausible. But anyway, it's just it's just a thought experiment. Obviously, it just I, I think the only reason that I do this kind of thing is not because it's fun, and it is. I'm a turtle dove dork. The idea of like, oh man, imagine like it's the same but different. Like when he read that he wrote that book where it's like, hey, what if World War One had happened in America? Oh man, that's cool. I like that. It's just I have that dorky uh, in, enjoyment of the of the, just the the novelty of it. Like I like history. What if it's like this? Ooh, that's intriguing. That's fun. But also because by articulating what didn't happen in its fullness, you can see where the real hinge points are, where the spokes of the wheel show up, where the light, like where the aperture opens up and you can see some light. And then that allows you to be able to recognize that when it emerges around you and to recognize the contours and to recognize where the stakes are and where the stakeholders are and where the real power and where the real momentum and the real chance lies in any given moment. Ah, anyway. Where's the spoke now? I don't know. This is why I'm looking backward, because my current, my vision, my glass is very foggy. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get it cleaner. I got to look back so I can look forward. I'm sorry. Uh, and and I, I, I beg your patience at this time while I try to do this, because it's the only way I know, because I'm not an eco economics guy. I'm not really a politics guy first and foremost. I am a history guy. That's what it all flows from. It's the, it's the, it's the, I can't do numbers. They make my brain hurt. I have to use my fingers. I, I can't, symbols other than words are difficult, and those symbols translated into scenes, into scenes of drama. That is how I... Make anything make sense. And that is why, like, I try not to criticize people beyond my area of, like, confidence and why, like, seeing people get mad at somebody like Matt Brooding is so frustrating. You, people who want to impugn Matt Brooding over his motives are mostly, uh, it's like, okay, you're just trying to justify why you don't like this guy. But so many people don't like him because of his presumed air of, like, because, well, no, because he assumes things that they don't assume. Like, he essentially assumes, look, how, what, how, how we're going to get to socialism, I don't know. What, what that, I don't, I, he's not, like, Matt hates history. He talks about how he hates reading history. He doesn't care about it. Like, he doesn't create the scenes in his head. So he's like, I don't know about that stuff. Don't really care about that stuff. So why would I, what would I, why would I invest my time on these questions? 
the questions that do resolve into br into brightness for me because he thinks I think numerically and symbolically in a way I don't uh, is what would be the shape, what would be the actual functioning mechanism of a realistic alternative to what we have now, and so he tries to build that, and then people get mad at him for for like no no you have cap this is still ca there's capitalism and colonialism and stuff in there it's like I'm sorry man I I don't. That's not part of the fucking formula that I can build things from. Like, you're wanting me to make, like I said, it's like he makes Stradivariuses and they're mad that he doesn't do a piano. He doesn't make pianos. And it's like, if you have a critique of the actual, like, information and, and, and the analysis, go for it. But if you're mad at him because he's not assuming a cashless utopian space communism, I'm sorry. That's not... That's not what interests him about the socialist project. You need the grand romantic vision. He does not. And so if it's a good idea, hey, maybe use it. Like, there, hey, maybe there is a jump ball in the Democratic Party right now. And, like, there has to be some sort of... Uh, Soothing the base in the sense of injecting liquidity at the bottom. I mean, honestly, it might come down to that. Like, I don't know what we're going to get. I have no idea what the fucking Democrats are going to do. It's probably going to suck, but it might not be as bad as some people think. And what it boils down to is going to be, it's going to be up to things I don't know about because I have not, I don't have enough my hands on like the nitty gritty of the, of the power dynamics in the Senate. Like it looks one way from the outside, but I don't know what it's like from the inside. So I cannot speculate to that point. But if whatever, if it does make some sort of, uh, if we do get like a, a real change, like a lot of people are saying, oh, the Democrats are serious about Keynesianism now. It's like, it's not because if that happens, it will not be because they have been uh, convinced by all the smart arguments and all the people's op-eds. It'll be because, oh shit, this system, it has a, it has a real problem of actual liquidity at the bottom. We need to get fucking money into people's hands to circulate through the economy or the thing will literally fucking shudder to halt. And that means we got to give it to them. But so the decision is made not morally, not at the level of, of uh, politics or ideology. It's made at the level of material necessity. But then the shape it takes. Now you're at the policy, you're at the politics level and a thing like an actual alternative, an actual better alternative might get you something better. The thing people mistake, the de what Democrats specifically mistake here is that they mistake that for progress. That is not progress towards a goal. That is ad hoc, uh, like, pathfinding by a system. And the problem, we, another stupid, sterile argument in politics happens because two groups of people look at that, look at that decision and see it as a progress. The Democrat sees it as progress and says, look, this is how it works. The leftist sees it as progress and says, but it's either insufficient or it's designed to undermine progress broader. You know what I mean? Like they see it as, yes, this is a thing that moves us towards another thing. It isn't. These are all contingent policy decisions. They might add up to something, but that is decided at a deeper level. But I don't know. Like I said, that requires the like specific political uh, state of play analysis uh, information that I don't have. I am, as Brezhnev said, a big picture guy. And of course, that also means I don't have a lot of specialized intelligence. I don't have a very, uh, it's mostly bullshit, I will admit. But some people think that it's bullshit that makes sense and helps them in some way and enough of them do that, then it has to be useful. At least that's what I tell myself. People are trying to hold me to account for uh, saying that Kellyanne Conway is a dime. I'm sorry, people. You're not going to get me off the block on that one, even if it impeaches me in all other areas. 
And I understand that she has turned into sort of a good desiccated gargoyle. But when she was on, for the old heads out there, when she was on Bill Maher in the 90s, he would always have like a, a perky young blonde conservative on there. She was foxy. And when I see her, I see her sort of through the lens of me being horny for her while watching Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Because remember, I was watching Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher at the precise moment that my gonads were first being fired with Hephaestus's hammer. Look, don't hate the player, hate the game. Posting bonk. What is this? I saw that. I saw a meme about that. It was it was the Doge dog as the Terminator with the Gatling gun, and he was firing baseball bats. And they said, bonk. What does that mean? What does bonk mean? Bonk is horny, please? Is it your... I'm assuming it's... You get hit with it like they have a, uh, a baseball bat and they hit you for being horny. So it's the sound of getting hit for being horny. Okay, I get it. Does that mean that I am uh, that I am officially bonk-pilled because I know this? Munch-pilled and bonk-pilled. That's what we are out here. That's what we out here doing. We being munch-pilled and bonk-pilled. I'm going to answer one more question on here. People say that it's bad chat. I'm sorry. I never really read it when I'm on a roll. I can't really see. I can't. I cannot get distracted. So I miss a big chunk of it. Apparently it's all terrible. You people need to bring it. Come on. At least not for me, for each other. I watched Bakker. I was okay. It was good. I don't think a war with China is going to happen. I think that everybody is going to be compelled to get things a little closer to the best now. I think we might see a retrenchment. But again, I don't know for sure. There's a lot of uh, things up in the air. Iran being a big one because, you know, the Pompeo and uh, Mohammed bin Salman and fucking Netanyahu were making real sure at the very end there to keep the momentum really against any kind of rapprochement. And uh, there's obviously going to be forces within the Biden administration who are going to be totally happy with that. So we'll see. We'll see. Will I get a vaccine? I mean, at this point, it doesn't feel like I have to even worry about it. <laughs> like, what, what, when would I be able to get a vaccine? How many months from now? Uh, and at that point, honestly, it'll either be so obviously the good thing to do because it's like working or it'll be so fucked that I'll probably already have fucking had COVID. So why would I even bother? I probably wouldn't. I mean, I have made no rush. I've made no inquiries. I haven't checked to see what my number is. So I'm not in a hurry to get it. I will say that. And being a podcaster means I don't have to worry too much about exposure in the public, so I feel like it's a safe risk. And uh, at this point, a safer risk than just taking the thing. I'm sorry. I know, I know, I know. He was 86, but when fucking Hank Aaron just got the fucking jab and then he's dead two weeks later, 
<laughs> I mean, yes, yes, yes. He's 86. I get it. But I'm just asking questions. I'm jacking off right now. But I'm not going to lie. When I saw that, I did a little... I did a little... When I saw that. It's like, damn, the, the guy was spry enough to be walking around and getting uh, publicly taken to the hospital to get a shot and then... Third party of the way of the future, one way or the other. I doubt it'll be any of the existing third parties, and it might not even be, and I, I think it's probably not going to be, a conventional American-style popular political party. I think it might be more like a fucking real... Um, a real... I don't want to say vanguardist, but like some something that is... Uh, that is, maybe incorporates an electoral element, but is not entirely electoral, I guess is the way I would say. And the reason I say that, but some people say, oh, well, that's, uh, that's like the PSL, or that's, uh, if they exist now, they're just mutants. I'm sorry, any small third party that exists now is made up entirely of mutants. Don't get mad at me for saying that. And if you are a mutant, I'm not blaming you for that. We're all, we're all mutants. I'm saying that there are not enough mutants and that the way mutants talk about politics is alienating to non-mutants. And so it will not be like... People aren't going to go into this org. There's no transition belt. They're going to make something themselves. And you can be part of it. You just have to be able to be at the moment and be able to recognize it. All right, folks. Peace out.